Hello and welcome to East Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yes. A lot of people have been talking about it. I don't know if you've heard sort of the hype or the praise. Actually, I haven't. Um, and uh, watching it, I, I was thinking, why haven't I? I mean, obviously, when it first came out on Netflix, people were saying, oh, the you know, Charlie Kaufman film or whatever. But the discussion stopped very quickly on it, actually, at least mm. in my circles. Yeah. yeah, I guess, well, it, it, this is kind of one of my problems in a way, that, and it's not a problem with the film as much as it is with what it signifies and the people who are responding to it, in that I don't think I've seen very much discussion. I've seen a lot of praise. Right. And I think it's kind of, this is like the latest kind of cultural capital thing, where it's like, if I say I like this, people will think I'm smart, I ah, think. That's interesting, because, well, my view of it changed throughout watching mm. it, right? Like, uh, you know, my first impression was, oh, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> it's like so morbid and depressing and self-indulgent. And then I thought, oh, my God, these are people like me. Like, you know, like, so the discussions about a woman under the influence and the poetry, you know, and then they go into the house and there's Pauline Kael's collected works and they cite her, you know, and the Robert Zemeckis film and the William Foster Wallace. I mean, I've read all that. That's me. Right. But I thought but none of these people have any humour about it. <laughs> like, yeah, like there's not a joke in it, really, yeah? And then, you know, there's the ballet, like the, the musicals, mm-hmm. yeah, God, that's me, right? Um, and then they, there was that dance in the uh, uh, hallway of the high school, and I got all emotional. Really? Yes. So, so I think kind of my response to it kind of almost altered constantly until the end uh, and then I was I was I was very glad to have experienced it I kind of went the other way and I liked it less as it went on ah. um, I think yeah, it's interesting when you say they, they, they bring up Pauline Kael and artists and poetry and things it's interesting because they don't cite it as they say that there's this um, there's this motif in the film of kind of taking authorship from other people. So the poem that she recites in the car towards the start of the film is supposed to be her poem that she's written. But you find out later on it's not. It's part of this collection. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, Eva something, I think, right. um, who I think is a friend of Charlie Kaufman's and that's maybe why yeah. it went in. The the paintings that she's supposed to have done are not hers. They're by someone else. You see them as like posters. Yeah, later on. Um, obviously, then when they're talking about a woman under the influence, she starts reciting this review. And, you know, just what I was, I googled you know, sort of, is this Pauline Kael's actual mm. review? Because it's not, they don't say Pauline Kael, but you have earlier seen that collection. Mm. And it sounded a lot like Pauline like Kael. Like her, it did, yeah. Um, but again, it's like, it's not cited and she's not quoting. It's directly, it's her bringing this up. So it's a motif that runs through the film that that kind of authorship is, is stripped from the people who uh, have actually created these works. Uh-huh. Um, it's not saying that I had a good read on, though. I kind of knew what to make of, but it's definitely repeats. Yeah. Which just maybe say what the film's about before we get too into it. And there will be kind of spoilers coming up, but it's a film that kind of moves in all sorts of weird ways. So you can spoil it, like you can technically say, "Oh, this is what happens," and mm. you know you wouldn't want to know that before you saw it. But it's not a film in which kind of plot revelation is kind of key. Mm. You know, it's a, it's about character and mood and tone that sort of thing. You can't really spoil that in a podcast. Mm. So. Take it as you will. We are going to talk about what happens in the film. Yes. Um, 
it begins with um, a young couple. The guy's played by Jesse Plemons, who you'll know from Breaking Bad as Todd and a lot of other things. He's he's a he's a really big. He's like he's about as big as a kind of character actor gets, I guess. I love him in in film and TV. Um, um, so you'd recognise him. And the girl is played by um, Jesse Buckley. Jesse Buckley, who is Irish, or she plays American in this. And I, I don't think I've seen her in anything before, but she's done things for like the BBC. I haven't seen her in anything. And then they get to the guy's parents' house. That's where they're going to this kind of farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in winter. And the parents are played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis. And she's meeting them for the first time. And can can a... I interrupt for a second? Yeah. David Thewlis is one of those people who drives me fucking crazy. You know how I complain about casting British actors, mm. right? And actually then I thought it's interesting because I'm always complaining to Mike about casting British actors and I don't mind Tony Collette, right? You He's know, Australian. So why, why, yeah, why is David Thewlis bothering me? And, you know, part of the reason is he can't even be fucking bothered to do a Midwestern accent, right? I mean, yeah, he's playing in his basically natural accent. I know. Yeah, but I didn't have a problem with that, though, because well, I think I the film he's is so... Well, supposed de- to be a, but the a film Midwestern is- farmer. No, he's not, though. Well, he is, but the film is so detached from from reality in so many ways that I well, really didn't mind... I, I, I don't think it's that detached in, in, that, in those many ways. All of the differences to the food, you know, the places, the landscape... You know, carrying chains in your car for the snow, that's not detached from place. That is of a place. So David Tell was not even bo- fucking bothering to, to, to attempt to be a Midwesterner. Yeah, piss me off. Mm. I mean, we had, this, we had a similar problem with um, Three Billboards, you know, and that yeah. film was, I mean, that, that film was all over, kind of, had no real sense of respect for the place and kind of yes. type of people it was sort of purporting to portray. Um, and I shared, you know, that criticism of that, but you know that was also trying to go down a more sort of realistic and grounded road. It wasn't really trying to tell you that this is this is slightly different from the real world. But this, there's so much that's off kilter about this film. Well, I see what you mean. That I kind of just let that go. Well, I didn't, mm. uh, and actually, for 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 the same reasons maybe that you did. I there's so much that's off kilter. It's true. And so much that is constantly changing in the film. So, for example, the name of the lead changes from mm-hmm. Lucy to I don't know what. Yeah, um, yeah. There's Lucy. There's like Lucia, Lou, other stuff, and, and then at one point maybe Amy. That's right. So you know, there's so many changes going on, and every time David Thoreau opened his mouth, to me it dislocated me, right? Mm-hmm. Like in okay. yet another way, right? I mean. Uh, you know, it's a person. It's a voice that doesn't belong in a midwestern farm where they sing Oklahoma and they go, you know, drink root beer or whatever it is, and the burr or whatever. Mm. I mean, it just kind of uh, to me it was completely off, and I thought it was the wrong choice. And if they couldn't get someone, you know, to speak with an accent that belonged there, they should have hired someone else. Okay, well, um, that's <laughs> let's continue with the plot of the film. Um, <laughs> Sorry, a mini rant. <laughs> okay, so so they go to the to the farmhouse, which is owned by two uh, born and bred native Oklahomans, both <laughs> 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 by an Australian and a and a Brit, um, and a kind of a, an uncomfortable sort of dinner ensues. You know, like I say, it's it's the young girl's first time meeting uh, the guy's parents and they've only been going out for some like six or seven weeks actually that's one of the first sort of lines of the film yeah. is there's a lot of voiceover and the film begins with her voiceover saying I'm thinking of ending things 
And then during the voiceover, I think early on, she says, has it been six or seven weeks? I should know that. Let's go with seven. Yeah. Feels a lot longer. Time is another thing we'll, I want to get onto at least. Mm. And then the film turns into a kind of, I would say, like a light horror movie. And I think the film has been maybe even marketed as though it's a horror and I think there's all sorts of horror tropes used in the film, but I never felt it was a horror. It's not a horror. Um, I mean, it's certainly not scary, but, you know, it has things like a journey to an abandoned... Or not abandoned, but a journey to a uh, isolated Farm, farmhouse. The basement. The, the, the basement with the scratches on the door, the feeling that they might not get out. You know, they're isolated. The chain's on the car. Are we going to be able to leave and stuff? Um, the weird family. I mean, it, that dinner scene, when it began, had a kind of Texas chainsaw feel to me, like no, that no. creepy family, you know? No, so no, there's no. a lot of that going on. Um but it never goes into true horror territory, I don't think. Although no. I, maybe your relationship to it is more of a personal thing. Um, I think it was more of the horror of life than like horror movie horror. <laughs> yeah. And this kind of long, long evening. Tur- what well, this evening of dinner turns into a very surreal um, kind of experience for the girl, in which as she kind of explores the house and goes into different rooms, and by this point she's kind of been left on her own, the family members start to appear, but the parents are, are, are very much older, or they're younger, or they're in a state of decrepitude, and it's very weird, and you, weird in a kind of light way, like nothing's really threatening, but um, you just kind of never quite know, like every room seems to hold a new weird surprise. Mm. Eventually they, they leave, she's urging them to leave, she's got work the next day. Again, another long conversation in the car ensues, and they end up at... Uh, Jesse Plemons High School mm. where again another f- kind of few turns are taken and the film ends and um, and also throughout there's been this sub well plot is probably too strong but strand of this janitor who you've seen pop up from time to time yeah. he's introduced right at the start as well you hear a bit of voiceover from him that is subsequently kind of yeah. ignored because you go back to hers which I thought was fun the end of the film is sort of his to a degree I think like it, it, there's a lot of focus on him at the end yes and then him uh, well I had this I felt the suggestion that he is Jesse Plemons as an older man he has to be because there's all kinds of connections made with him so we're told that Jesse Plemons character is a janitor right and then the scene where she goes into the basement and she sees all of the clothes being washed they all have the logo of the high school that's that his he, uniform yeah yeah you know so um, so yeah, but um, but again, like as 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 to what that ends up adding up to, I'm I'm not sure. It's a film that really deals in in symbols and feeling, and and I want I get I want to kind of think about how the way time works in it because it made me think about Christopher Nolan again. Actually, I mean, actually, it's, it's interesting because I'm You're it, obsessed. No, well, it's not. Some, <laughs> it's not obsession, but I thought you know the way this is working. Like in a, in a Nolan film, the way time works, it wants to add up. You know, the way the way that the kind of logic behind the way he manipulates time, mm. it wants to make sense to you ultimately. Mm. Um, and this has a much more free, uh, kind of poetic and expressive yes. um, approach to time. So yes. like I say, you walk into a room and the dad is there and he's 20 years older with grey hair and he's got almost dementia and he's shaking. And then you walk into another room, he's younger again, but the wife is incredibly old and she's on her last legs. Mm. And there's a kind of feeling of death around that that I think kind of pervades the film. Yes. Right at the start, when they get to the farmhouse, um, uh, Jesse Plemons takes takes the girl on a on a tour, and one of the things they see is some lambs that are frozen, and she says, "Yeah, and literally like dead, frozen mm. and dead." Um, and she says, "What's going to happen to them?" And he says, "You know, it, when they thaw out, they'll probably be burned." But there's this thing, there's this feeling of like they are frozen in time. 
for now, you know, as they are. And then shortly after that, they get to the pigs, and there's this black spot on the ground in the pig pen, the pigsty. And he says, we discovered these two pigs, and they were being eaten alive from the inside by maggots, or from underneath by maggots. And that's where they were. And so this black spot kind of weirdly memorialises these pigs that were Mm. there. And then when you get into the sort of dreamy aspect of that evening in the house... You get the dad in this state of physical decrepitude and Alzheimer's is coming on for him. And he says, I'm looking forward to when it gets really bad because I won't have to remember that I don't remember. Mm. Um, And the mum is literally dying with her son by her side. Which again, I think has has kind of horror film aspects to it. You know, physical uh, deterioration is is very often a motif of of horror as well and kind of haunted houses and things. Mm. Um, So that's that's kind of around the whole thing. And to bring it back to... Nolan, like when I was sort of thinking about like the way this is much freer in this and you're not really expecting anything to add up and that's just not what the film is doing. It, it also made me think about how when we were watching all those Nolan films, we were kind of talking about Nolan as someone who is of particular importance to me and my generation mm. and my kind of people, my demographic, mm. you know. And, um, and it made me realise that Charlie Kaufman is as well, I think. Mm, like yes. Charlie Kaufman is someone who, who my generation really looks forward to the next thing he's going to do and how is he going to experiment mm. and what's the weirdness that he's going to kind of provide. It's primarily in his scripts because he, he used to just write scripts and then it's this and previously Anomalisa five years ago and previously Synecdoche, New York, which and he's Being directed. John no, well, those are the films he's directed. Ah, right, okay. And then previously, yeah, Being John Malkovich was the film that made him huge mm. as, a, as a screenwriter and that was directed by Spike Jones. And then Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which yes. is directed by Michel Gondry, which is a brilliant film. Yes. Okay. You know, I don't care if I fit right into that demographic. I think that's a fant- that's one of my favourite films. Yes. Um, and that, again, that I suppose kind of fed into this idea that actually what the response to this film feels to me like a response to the people behind the film, particularly him, and less to the film itself. Which No, I, I well, not for me. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like when I was looking at, because I, I was looking at reviews and I was trying to see what kind of handle people had on it, and every review that I saw was along the lines of they told you a few things that happened and said it was brilliant and were kind of satisfied with that. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is there was no attempt to interpret the film. And I thought this is just you're saying this because you want to be seen as liking it. Well, no, I mean, so well, so let's explore it. I mm. mean. Because, as I said, my view of it changed constantly throughout the film. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at the beginning, I thought it was so soft and lovely. I mean, what you were saying about death and, you know, the pig and the lambs. And, I mean, the film tells you, you know, right from the beginning, like, you know, what are the differences between humans and animals is that humans know we're, we're dying. Yeah, kind of, we will all die. It's the one thing you can't get away from. So, kind of, you know, that's, in a way, one of the things that the kickstarts the film. So, on the one hand you know, the girl is thinking of ending the relationship, and on the other hand, you know, this thing that we all die, right? So hmm. um, I was very disconcerted as well, you know, when they arrive. Uh, well, the whole conversation in the car at the beginning when they're driving to the farm, I really love that, actually, you know. So, um, so, so on the one hand, I didn't. I thought it was self-indulgent <laughs> and so on. On the other hand, I thought this really does evoke all the awkward relationships or, you mm. know, that you've ever had with your lovers or partners and, you know, uh, kind of or, or the wanting to speak and the not wanting to speak or the dread of speaking or the, you know, kind of managing situations where your head is saying something different than what your actions are performing. I mean, I thought all of that, you know, so I didn't like it, 
but I recognize it really yeah so and I and mm-hmm. I think that's its own kind of achievement really that sense of uncomfortable kind of dread really uh, yeah discomforting being in a situation you really kind of almost don't want to be in really you know and on the other hand kind of being torn because you are finding all these connections with people, right? So she keeps saying, oh, yes, he's very nice. I want to break up with him, but he is very nice. He is very thoughtful. He lets me speak, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so there's like this kind of weighing. So I didn't enjoy it, but it kind of spoke some truth to me. Yeah, I kind of, I mm-hmm. like seeing it dramatized because you so very rarely in cinema get things you recognize you know, as being true to you, yeah. dramatized in those ways. The scene that I really didn't like was uh, when they got to the farmhouse. You know, and the whole thing with, like, Tony Collette and his bedroom. And like you said, David Thaw was, every time he opened his mouth, it really took me out of the... Thewless. Thewless. <laughs> well, T. <laughs> David T. He can fuck off. If you can't be bothered with the accent, why should I bother with his name? <laughs> so, um... And then this thing about the aging and the makeup, and like you said, it's almost like every scene you were meant to be in a different time. They looked either older or younger, but this was made even more complex because actually the young people never changed. Right? They yeah. didn't get older in response to it or younger. So you think kind of, what is this signifying? Is this, you know, is she looking at this and thinking, this is going to be my life with this guy, yeah, visiting this farmhouse as they get older and die and forget, you know, and so on. And, you know... Uh, that farmhouse which initially seems nice but then the closer you look at it it's all dirty and scratched and the food looks terrible and then the nightgown has vomit from 1973 or whatever it is baby food sorry baby food yeah baby food Mm. yeah so it's been there for 20 yeah and there's a sense of creepiness and disgust and so is this going to be my life? And, and it all evokes a kind of loneliness or alienation, yeah? Mm. These people are never connecting, really, yeah? I think that's really true of, of Charlie Kaufman's work in general. It's a lot about isolation, only just trying to connect, not being able to, that sort of thing. Yes. Um. But I wish I'd been able to make more sense of that patterning. Mm. Like, I actually, I just didn't quite understand why in some scenes he was middle-aged and in some scenes he was very old. And in some scenes, he was like, yeah. Or she, you know, dead, young, mm. yeah. I, it, it felt really scattershot to me. And maybe it's something that, you know, further viewing would kind of elucidate. But I think this goes to what I was saying about the film, the film's use of time not having a, a logic to it, really. It's, it's, a, it's about a feeling and that dislocation, I guess. Hopefully, that's, that's kind of feeling, because that's what I got from it. I, I think it has, there, there has to be a logic. You know, because, I mean, just in terms of editing the film and putting it together, mm. you, you know, there, you will have put it there for reasons. But that the reasons that a viewer can discern is a problem. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so. Um, I think it's a failed kind of idea because I feel left so left kind of just left out of it, like not not getting it. Right. Mm. Um, maybe that's maybe that's like oh well I didn't get it and that's my fault and other people got it but um, I do think it's a fair idea because I don't know that there is really actually an underlying logic to it and that means that the kind of emotional or tonal 
things it was going for didn't really register with me because it's not a film that made me feel really at all and I think that's what it wants to do ultimately yes. I think that's how it's trying to speak to you is yes. through feeling actually I think it's very interesting because the only times that I did feel so I felt negative things like dread <laughs> yeah, recognition in the whole first hour so that is a kind of feeling right? yeah and a kind of truth actually that you recognize these things as being true to your own life the film establishes a connection with you so but then afterwards I felt this really should be a lot more me. All of our, the frames of reference are the same. Yeah, everything he's quoting, I get. Yeah, but, but what I'm missing is a kind of um, a sense of humor, a laugh, a joke, you know, something, something pretty in life, right? Something, yeah, like it's not all this bleak alienation. It felt kind of false to me in that respect. And then the moments where I did connect were when they sung from Oklahoma, I think, yeah, mm -hmm. in that high school production. We think, oh, this music is so glorious. <laughs> and the ballet sequence in the... Uh, uh, yeah, through the high school, towards the high end. school, Which I found very moving. And actually, the la I think it's one of the last lines when they're, the pig drives the old man or begins to walk the old man, presumably to heaven or whatever, and says, you know, what we have to remember is that there is kindness in the world, blah, blah, blah. And actually, I thought, yes, right. <laughs> but, um, so it's a, it's a film that I almost connected to, and maybe it's just I have a sunnier outlook, <laughs> right? Disposition. Yeah, but I, but I actually think there's something, you know, except for those moments, I was beginning to think, like, I, I just don't, it reminded me a little bit of Ken Loach's films, where I just end up not believing them. They alienate me because, you know, mm -hmm. nothing is ever so relentlessly grim. And right, and I think nothing is ever so relentlessly alienating. You know, we do connect to people and we connect sometimes with little things, right? Like a gesture or, you know, I mean, you've been told that the mother can't cook and yet here she has, she's made a, a whole feast out of stuff that's been produced in the farm. So, you know, maybe to connect, I mean, I, I think, I think the, mm. you know, this thing that we're always alone or we have trouble connecting or whatever would have been more powerful and more truthful had you also throughout shown slight moments of, of connection, really. It's interesting to think about, um, you say about the mother, she can't cook, but then she lays on this amazing feast because that kind of contradiction is um, repeated through the film. Yes. Um, so you mentioned, you know, the girl's name is... is given many different names to the point where at one point in the voiceover she's not even sure what her name is she says yeah. Amy is he calling me Amy that doesn't sound right um, her job changes yes. she's a quantum physicist she's a gerontologist she's a waitress she's a painter, a painter poet all sorts of things yeah. right um, and she kind of she seems to show expertise in these various things at different points as well yes. so it's, like, it's not just a label you know she she, talk about she changes um, and there are other things of, of that nature does and, he change sorry does he change? Well, this is kind of what I'm getting to, because I think, actually, he, in some sense, although the film really begins from her perspective and really carries through her perspective, I mean, she's the one walking through the house that we're following, um, and, you know, it, it, she's the one we're stuck in the car with when he gets out and leaves at the school, so we're with her the whole time. But in some way, I think the film's reality is kind of created by him, by Jesse Plemons. Um, I, I think one thing that I really love about Charlie Kaufman's work is 
it's basically always set in someone's head somehow or other. Yeah. You know, beginning with being John Malkovich, where they literally go inside John Malkovich's head and see out of his head for 15 minutes and end up taking him over. You know, I hope I haven't spoiled it for anyone, but it's, it's great. Um, you know, Eternal Sunshine, they literally run through mm. <laughs> uh, Jim Carrey's memories in that film. You know, half the film takes place inside his brain. Um, but then more, more generally... Um, in his later work, Anomalisa kind of takes place within the David Thewlis's character's head insofar as he everyone he, he, he has a voice and the girl has a voice and every other character shares Tom Noonan's voice mm. in that they're all just the same person. So like he kind of depersonalises them and it's, about, and it's just down to him and the girl. Um, and in this, I, I get the feeling, I think there's something interesting going on in terms of male-female dynamics in this and kind of social expectations in that she kind of has this feeling the girl in this that she wants to end this relationship she starts off with I'm thinking of ending things Mm. Um, and what you were saying about you know she kind of weighs up pros and cons of the relationship Mm. she there's there's like this kind of instinctive feeling that she has that like this is just not going to go well you know Mm. and then there's that thing she says about uh, they tell the story about how they met and it's this thing that there was a quiz night at a bar and he was looking at her and she, he asked her a number eventually and she said yes. And then she, later on when she's kind of thinking back on it on her own, she's saying, why did you say yes? It's so easy to say yes. And then a yes turns to another yes turns to another yes turns to a whole relationship. Whereas you could, you can't you just say no? Mm. And so there's like instinct, this instinctive thing that, that she should have said no and that she can see this going bad. Um, but she engineered it because he was too shy. So, yeah. you know, like the whole drive comes from her. That's true, the initial thing. Although I think you also kind of get the feeling, I, I did, that in that dinner scene, they, they're kind of putting on a show almost for the parents. Yeah, that you, you know. do, yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right, but I think it's, I think it's an area where there's kind of slippage. Um, I wish we'd been more inside his head, because that, actually that is what's missing. Well, this is the thing. I think that ultimately she... Like, her identity seems to change in ways that favour him or the ways that he likes, kind of, I think. You know, he gets to name her. He gets to say what her job is. Mm. Um, And so that in combination with the idea that she kind of has this feeling that something is wrong and she needs to leave is like, there's like a... It's like a kind of dramatisation of a kind of toxic relationship in which she feels controlled and can sense that's wrong. He has this feeling about him of a guy who's like getting there in terms of like progressiveness and wokeness, but he out, he has outbursts, he has well, out- aggression, and you feel like, oh, he's not quite there, and actually I can tell that I shouldn't be in this relationship. There, there are two things that support that. So one is the mother who says, well, you know, the other side of being diligent yeah, and being responsible is that they're also controlling, right? So mm. she says that about uh, her own son. And then the other thing is the discussion about baby is cold outside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that spoke to me. Uh, um, so I rec- that's something that I recognised, as you recognised the conversation earlier on. Like, I recognised that thing of he, he starts singing baby it's cold outside, hoping to get her to make out or fuck him in the car. And she says, that song's about rape, you know. Like, you think that's going to entice me? And he says, no, it's not. And then she kind of explains why. And... He's resistant to the idea, and eventually kind of comes around and apologizes. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't express an understanding of the point. He just kind of accepts it, you know. So like he kind of he like he basically he 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 gets he he he, uh, he lays off and he accepts it. 
but um, I don't think it sort of says, oh, yeah, you are absolutely No, right. I, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I see what you mean, but I think it does get to the point where he says, yes, you've convinced me. Sure. You know, so... Um, but it is true that you're not inside his head. So uh, you're inside her head, and she's obviously constantly talking about him. Mm. When they're the parents, the parents talk about him, and she performs to the parents about him. Yeah, but actually, the only moment where you really get inside his head is the final bit where he sings and you know mm. he's awarded the Nobel Prize and he sings the closing song. I don't think you 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 ever get inside his head before that. Not in the same way, but so what I'm saying is maybe this is a very charitable interpretation of the film because it's a film I had real problems with and I and I I couldn't go as far as saying I liked it really. Mm. But I think what it's trying to get at is you you are her inside a world created by him. Ah. You see what I mean? Yes, I do. And that kind of feeling of trying to escape. But the film is not conveying that very well, if that is the case, mm. because it starts with her. Yeah. You know, so actually, as far as, you know, film conventions go, oh, she yeah. is the world. It's her world, you know, that we're getting. She's the only one in it for the first 10 minutes or something. Uh, yeah, when she's waiting to be picked up. Picked up, she's got that whole monologue, right? Mm. You know, so so so. Yeah, it's I know what world. you mean. But then, like, like it's a very, it's a real horror film trope that journey away from somewhere to somewhere new uh, that happens at, at the start of so many horror films, and maybe you could see that as the journey from her world into his. Mm. You know, let me ask you how how do you interpret the last images in the film? Uh, do you mean the uh, the on stage? Well, no, it, it goes from the onstage and then there's a kind of a dissolve or something it to dissolves. the frozen car and the high school, a painting mm. of the frozen car. Is it a painting? I think so. It was an. It, I think it's a shot and then it blurs and the credits come over it throughout. It looked to me okay. like uh, uh, an animated... Yeah. Oh, right. I mean, we could look at it. We could do. It's like if we're watching it on Netflix. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I want to ask you about the beginning images as well, actually. Well, let's go to the end first, we said Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a long film as well, 12 and 15 minutes. It took me ages to watch it as well, because actually when it got to the bit where the, cap, the Pauline Kale was happening, mm. I paused it and, it, and it helped that I was so bored. <laughs> it was easy to pause it. And then I looked up, you know, was that a real view? And then actually I just ended up chatting to um, uh, Celia for about an hour just about Paul and Kale and other stuff, and that was much more entertaining than the film. Uh, <laughs> mm. To me it does look... It might well be um, you know, computer-generated or model or something. Yeah. It's difficult to tell. It might be, yeah. No. And then it fades. So yeah, it's interesting. It blurs. Mm. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't really have a good read on on that fade to the car and then yeah I don't I mean do you well it's where the old man who might be him has just died on a cold winter's night right so it could be that you know this guy's life is just he'll end up being you know a, a janitor in a high school and kind of yeah you know, so um, I mean the film does kind of play with those with those shots of the janitor 
kind of interspliced, inter- interspliced, whatever, spliced in. Um, the film does kind of play as as his memories, mm. you know, or kind of his imaginings or something like that. Yes. Um, like he's the author of this story, and there's a lot. Oh, come on. Sorry, I just want to show the first images because I couldn't decipher them. It's a piece of music. No, no, it's on the telly. You need to make the telly sound. Um. Yeah, what is that? Well, that's the um, production company, isn't it? Oh, is it? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mute it, man, mute it. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, it has a Russian thing. Okay, so it's probably... Right. But what is the first image in the film? Let's see. Interesting title, title, yeah. Small title, lowercase, just so indie. Yeah. Ugh. And so, what is this? It's like wallpaper. Yeah. We should say, we're watching the start of the film now. Yeah. <laughs> She's talking about this feeling that she has that She's she has to get out of it. Yeah. Oh, so what we've been seeing is clothes patterns. Well, that's the house, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's the parents' house, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So actually, that's what begins the film, not her. That makes a difference. Okay, looking at this again, it does alter my interpretation of the film. Look, the old wheelchair. So it doesn't begin with her. It begins with her voice. Hmm. But it begins with her voice over this house of this family that's not hers. That's a famous painting, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, um, what's it called? The Scottish one, that's often used to evoke the sublime. Mm. Caspar David Friedrich's Wander Above a Sea of Fog. That's what it is. Okay, so now it starts on her. It's just this person confronted with, you know, kind of uncertainty and that sort of thing, I suppose. You can't see his face. Anyway. So, you know, it begins with this old house that's deserted, that introduces a lot of the themes that you see throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, the, the, the wheelchair, people are dying, the swings, you know, for children that, are no, that no longer need them. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah the, the house becomes the psychic setting of the film, not, not her. Um, I think that's very interesting because it's his house, it's his family's house, mm. right? So, but it's his family's house with her voiceover on it. So that's interesting because then it begins with him, the song, the speech, the look of sadness because, you know, his, his look of happiness at the applause turns to sadness just before the dissolve and it dissolves onto this frozen car in, yeah, in front of the high school. So, so, so that's interesting. The house, her voice, and then, you know, what the film gives the impression is his death. Mm. So, well, it alters my interpretation. No, of sure. I, I, if, uh, well, that, like I say, it feels, so far it feels fruitless to me because I feel like, yeah, we can notice these things, but, but how are we adding them up? And I don't know that we are. Um, well, maybe, that's my thing, maybe it's just a complex work that requires another view. Well, yeah, but let's do it now. We're not, not watching now. Fucking, I'm not watching it again. 
But like, you know, that's why I, I, that's that was my problem with, with with reading all these reviews is they would say, oh, it's very complex, and leave it at that. Like, try, you know, that's what I'd be. That's what I hopefully have been trying to do. You know, uh, through this is like try and actually think through what it means and. Because there were things that I liked, you know, I, I really liked, and this actually I think goes back to the idea that I, that I was thinking about with with, uh, are we in his head, you know, mm. a world created by him, where when she is uh, ostensibly a painter and she's having her work kind of criticised or critiqued uh, by the parents, um, the dad says she she does these landscapes, and the dad is saying, well, how can you? How can you know, how can you have a feeling from a landscape if there's no one in it to tell you how to feel? There's someone should be looking sad or angry or happy or whatever. Mm. And she says, "Well, imagine that you're the person having that feeling, right? Imagine like if you were there, you wouldn't be looking mm. at another person. You'd be looking at this. How would you feel?" And she has this. She says something about, you know, the world is just there. The world just exists, and we we are the ones who experience it. And I thought it was a great. Yeah, you know, something I was thinking, and then the film kind of kind of vocalized it. This idea that like. What a landscape painting reveals is not the landscape, but the person who painted it and the person who's looking at it. You know, their responses are what the painting is, mm. really. You know, other, and when you look at a real landscape, same thing. The person who's looking at it and how they feel is actually what that landscape is. Because if it's not experienced, it's, then it's just there. Mm. But it's, it's not kind of meaningful, mm. you know. I don't know. I really liked that idea. Well, you see, but for me, that was... Um, given a twist because then she goes downstairs to the basement and discovers all these paintings some of them which look very similar to the ones that she had been showing us hers they are yeah they're hers I mean but they're not hers because that's what you kind of discovered they are this other person's paintings like with the poem well but the other person I thought was the father you see no I think it's a real artist you see the name on on the posters I know but I mean nothing indicates to you that it's a real artist I mean unless you recognize the name you don't know that Right, so I thought it was the father because she, why did I think it was the father? Well, she's going down to his basement, and the paintings you're given a male name, so it's logical to assume that it would be the father's paintings, really. Mm. You know, so uh, although it being on Netflix, one thing you can do is just pause it and Google it. I mean, that's a weird thing. Like, are you actually meant to in a way? Like, this film was made for Netflix, right? It wasn't made by other people, and Netflix bought it. Mm. It's made for Netflix, and you think maybe? I mean, I remember. There are definitely like TV shows and things that have done that. There's definitely been parts of Mad Men I remember where they would mention something, definitely with the expectation that people would be googling it straight away. You know, there was this thing about a Doctor Lyle something or other who actually turned out to be fictional, but like definitely everyone's just googling it straight away because they hear this name. Actually, I feel like there's a bit of that in this where like you can stop and Google all of the references and all of the things that they quote. When it came to the um, the references, I think I had a different relationships than you did um not just because i haven't seen for instance a woman under the influence i've you know not read kale's review of it um although i pretty much identified it straight away um she's got a style yeah she does. <laughs> um uh but i i kind of wondered whether is the film say it's a film kind of honestly sort of putting forth these are the kind of conversations that these people have or is it i think it's kind of mocking you know these are the kinds of people that have these kinds of conversations that felt kind of sarcastic to me or at yeah. least that's one that's one way of thinking about it. That's one possible interpretation. Well, I mean, I did kind of feel like with with Jesse Plemons' character, I recognised so much about him that he's actually not all that complimentary to me, basically. Yes. Like, like he's a guy who really values his intelligence, mm. but actually hasn't done all that much with his life. Mm. You know, um, 
I don't know. He kind of he he has like a, he seems to have like an image of himself that he values quite highly, but actually speaks to like he knows that it's not a true image of himself and doesn't like that other people see him differently or will speak about him that kind of thing. Well, he's someone who's 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 ill at ease in himself. Yeah, who's very shy. Uh, who's very shy, but clearly also willful. Yeah. Like, mm. You know, you don't end up from that farmhouse with those parents, yeah, into the set of references that he has without following his own path. And actually the film also has a a motif of saying how rare it is that people are themselves, that they're often other people, or they're citations of other people, or they're, you know, things that other people want them to be, or, yeah, like, mm. there is a whole kind of line of thought around that. So, so actually, the, him being himself is obviously something that he valorizes, yeah? And on the other hand, the himself that he is is a very awkward person, a very socially ill at ease person. Mm. Um, but those two things go together neatly, I think. They're not contradictory. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, just, you know, to do my own wrapping up, um, I think it's, it's a film that my view of it changed as I went along. And actually, I do also think that it's a film that I would like to, to know better and that I would like to see again. Though, it has, it has less pleasures than I would like. Yeah, mm, It's not a yeah. pleasurable film to watch. It's one that connects oddly and in tangents with you in ways that very few films actually do. So in that sense, I, I value it you know, very considerably. Yeah. On the other hand, I wish it had more laughs or something. I wish it was more entertaining. Mm. Yeah. In the way, in what it's trying to convey. Yeah. Um, it's, so I, I just don't feel like I, I make headway with interpreting it because when I kind of come up with something that I think it's saying or expressing, it's just, it's vague. It's a wisp and mm. a sketch and I don't really... I'm not that sure about it, you know, and I wish I could have sort of a stronger feeling about what I think it means. And I don't. And I think some of it feels, like I say, very scattergun um, ideas kind of being shot at the walls. I mean, actually, when you were saying, oh, you didn't like it and then you started to, or mm. vaguely, that's what you said. Um, you know, it, it was the other way to me. In that I, do you remember, <laughs> remember what I said about Hereditary, interestingly, yes. which had another dinner scene with Tony Collette? Mm. Um, family dinner thing where you know I was saying like the, the first kind of half of hereditary was so fascinating and so well observed and I mm. loved it and then it goes mental and I just lost interest completely I had very much the same feeling about this you know like mm. when it started to get into the surreality and the aging and de-aging and time speeding up upside down or what have you um, that's when I just started to lose interest because it felt far less purposeful far less motivated mm. um I, you know, rather like hereditary. I don't think it's a compliment that I think it's like hereditary because I didn't like hereditary mm. ultimately. Um, out of the three films that Charlie Kaufman has directed, this is, I think, his worst. Um, although it may in some ways be his most sort of cinematic. I mean, like I say, I don't, you, I can't imagine how this made sense as a novel. Mm. It must be very, very different. Um, but Anomalisa um, was really beautiful. And again, actually, it had, a, I felt it had a really beautifully observed kind of mode of speaking and the way these two characters meet and have the sex scene, despite the fact it's 
stop motion. Mm. You know, it's like the most realistic sex scene I've ever seen in my life because mm. because of the interactions between these two and mm. how it develops. Um, and Snake to Key New York, which you said you haven't seen, mm. shares a lot of the ideas about, or, or a lot of the theme of um, death and dying. The main character in that is a guy called Caden Kotard, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Kotard is reference to the Kotard delusion, which is this... It's this imagination that you are dead. You feel like you are dead, and that's mm. all you believe. I mean, it's not just imagine. It's a delusion. You believe you're dead. I think that's what it is. And there's another interesting thing with kind of time slippage in that film, where at the very start, there's this breakfast scene with him and his family, and you see dates on, like, newspapers and milk cartons, and you hear it on the telly, and the dates are jumping forward, like, days and weeks in time during a breakfast scene. So, like, time is running away from you. It's escaping from you. Like, And that, I think, that definitely feels kind of echoed here. You know, that feeling like you're... Time is something that you can only experience and you're not in control of and it can get beyond you very quickly mm. and without you, yeah, it can leave you behind. Mm. You know, um, that kind of feeling of lack of control and speeding towards death. Mm. Um, there's an element of that here. Anyway, it's been really interesting to talk about it. You know, some interesting stuff has come out and I'm glad mm. um, because I wasn't expecting it to. I didn't, I, I felt nonplussed, mm. you know, and left kind of adrift by its imagery or symbolism and you know I feel a little bit less adrift now yes I, I do as well actually but um, uh, and really I, I do think that any film that leads to such an interesting conversation is a film worth watching again yeah it's very easy to say that though isn't it <laughs> it's true it's easier to say than to do but just because it's easier to say than to do doesn't mean that the fault isn't an honest one yeah <laughs> Yeah, so thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies. And we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube. I think Amazon Podcasts now. They've just started up. And I think we're on that. Oh, good. Because they picked up like 45,000 podcasts just by you know, putting in a list. And we were on it. Fantastic. <laughs> so I think we're on that. And uh, yeah, uh, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Our social media is Facebook and Twitter. And there you go. Cheerio. Bye. <laughs>